This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner and Momentum Partners, and welcome to our Digital Leadership Series. In this series of conversations, we're highlighting some of the best and brightest minds and practitioners in the business as we focus on their journeys into digital transformation, what they learned, what their successes were, what the challenges were, along with lessons that are relevant for you today. We hope you enjoy our explorations and get value from it. And always, we look for your feedback and suggestions. Good day and welcome, everyone. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta, with another episode of our podcast. And today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Julie Albright, who is a digital sociologist at the University of Southern California, uh, Dornsife Applied Psychology and Viterbi Engineering. Uh, she's also a board member at Infrastructure Masons, and she is the author of a new book, Left to Their Own Devices. And a little bit of context here. Um, um, I've known Julie for a few years. We actually have become friends uh, in an untethered way, which you'll get into, but we we actually met through another uh, a mutual friend online and have uh, you know have become friends in real life. Um, a couple of years ago, I was uh, you know we've we've been observing what's been happening in society with the adoption of technologies, the impact on business on uh, on society on the economy and it, it made it made me remember uh, uh, back in 2016 I went to see uh, a, a movie by uh, the director Werner Herzog called lo and behold reveries of the connected world which was really a uh, a look at the impact of the internet on humanity and I was talking to the uh, to the producer and after the after the after the screening and he really mentioned he said you know somebody really really needs to to write a book about this, so of course I was very excited, and I, I uh, relayed this to uh, to Julie, and well, lo and behold, that you know that the germ of the idea was already there. So uh, the book we're recording today it's it's actually uh, a bit before the release, but expecting that by the time people hear this, uh, the book will be out. Uh, I just finished reading it. It's it is truly superb, and and uh, the the amount of depth, the amount of detail, the uh, the the level of of insight, uh, just addressing so many different angles of the impact of, of technology on you know work, uh, on on society, on relationships, on organizations. Anyway, it's it, it's it's uh, it's really tremendous, and and goes without saying that I'm I do recommend it, but. Julie, I got you here, so let's talk about it. Thanks for joining us. So, Julie, how did you decide to to write this book? And really, you know, what was what was the background that that really inspired you to uh, you know to to look at addressing you know so many of these topics? This this you know this impact of technology. Well. I started out with a counseling degree and ended up with a dual doctorate in counseling and sociology over here at USC. And during the course of my studies, I started noticing people meeting online and they were chatting and starting romantic relationships in these chat rooms. And I showed it to my dad. I said, dad, this is going to be huge. And there were less than 3% of people on the internet at that time. And my dad saw these 
words scrolling up on a screen. And he said, why would anybody ever want to do that? But I knew by the connections that people were making and what I was seeing that it was just going to be gigantic. So since then, uh, over time, I've studied this. I've written a number of book chapters and, and uh, professional papers and conference presentations and whatnot on the, on the topic of online relationships and really looking at how digital culture is changing society. And now all you have to do is walk outside on any street corner and you're going to see people with their heads bent looking at phones, you know, on social media or texting or whatnot. It's really become so much more than even I imagined at the time. It's even more than mainstream. It's reshaping society. So let's talk about this concept of being untethered. This is, uh, you know, this is a word that you use a lot in the uh, in the book. But you know, what what does it mean to be untethered? So the book is centered on this notion of coming untethered, and the idea is that digital natives now, compared to prior generations, let's say baby boomers and before, are unhooking from traditional social structures and processes. Things like getting married or buying a home or buying a car or being uh, in a long-term career for years and years and years. Things that other generations might have done routinely, going to church, joining a political party, for example. Younger digital natives are unhooking from these things in droves and are hyper-attached to digital technologies. And that's the concept of coming untethered. And that's the idea that threads throughout this book. And I look at various vectors of life to see how it's changing. What does it mean to be untethered from, uh, you know, from say from you know? Let's let's talk about just relationships. What 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 are the implications of of becoming untethered in the way that that people interact with one another? Right. So in terms of coming untethered from, let's say, uh, marriage and family, for example, these are stabilizing structures, it turns out. And one of the things that really sort of prompted me to write this book, I'm on the front lines here at a university, and I have noticed over the years that we have this escalating uh, mental health crisis, if you will. Um, anxieties are up, depressions are up, and things like that uh, about a quarter of, of young people are on some kind of psychotropic medication now. And I thought, what is going on here? Obviously, things are changing. And if we look back at the early sociological studies, um, back to Durkheim, which is one of the cornerstone thinkers in sociology, the idea is that these kinds of social structures, be it church or be it family and marriage, are stabilizing, and they contribute to people's emotional and physical health in ways that would shock you, in fact. So there's this notion now, I think, that people are free. And for example, uh, online offers you this seemingly unending pool of possible romantic partners that you might choose. But paradoxically, in the face of unlimited choices, no one is choosing you end up with this thing called choice overload, which uh, consumer psychologists talk about, that the more choices people have, the less willing or able they are to choose anything. So that's what's kind of happening. We have all these dating apps. We have all the social media. 
a myriad of ways to meet a romantic partner, and yet digital natives are the most likely to be unmarried and, in fact, are on target to be the most unmarried generation ever by age 45. Well, this is also playing out in the way that people structure their structure their work lives and the way they organize their uh you know how they how they live as well and you've you've written some uh you've written about some people that are actually you know we, you call them digital nomads or they they find these uh these these jobs that are that allow them to work you know anywhere and that's becoming a bit of a uh, I mean, it's it, it's certainly a, more than a, a passing phenomenon. Could you talk about how that how that's evolved and how the how the relationship between say em, you know employers and employees is you know has changed too? Because I think you could you could point to the fact that you know there there, there certainly has not been over the last several decades, right? You, nobody can very few people count on working for one company for their entire careers. Um, but I, I think what you're what you've identified is that there you know there's some uh, that the digital technology is also having a big impact on this as well. Right, that's exactly right. And if you think about it, these digital natives coming untethered, they're pulling up roots. So if you go back to say you know the golden age of the family, which sociologists uh, point to post World War II, for example, you know the big goal of these folks coming back after the war. Uh, with the GI Bill and all, was to, you know, get that stake in the American dream, you know, put down those roots, buy that home in the suburbs, start your family, have a a family wagon uh, out in the driveway that you proudly showed off to the neighbors, have a dog, you know, and and go to that job every day that maybe you were there for 35 years. You know, this this was a sort of a routine way of living. But now, think about it pulling up the stakes of, first of all, not getting married, pulling up the stakes of not buying a home, pulling up the stakes of not having children, you suddenly are free to float about or to live untethered. And that's also then impacting the workforce because there's this notion that, well, I can work on my laptop at Starbucks. Why do I have to come into an office? And the thing about that is, it's really posing some serious challenges for managers because they don't know quite how to manage this untethered generation. You know, and and managers are having different reactions to this. They're saying, you know, you need to get back in here like IBM. They're saying, get back in here and work shoulder to shoulder with your comrades here at the workplace or or you're going to be fired. You know, that's one approach. The other approach is, uh, the folks that own WordPress, Automatic, they're saying, well, nobody's coming into the workplace here, so we're going to sell the office. And they sold their building, and now everyone is working remotely. So this is really a liminal period where we don't quite know how to handle these things yet, and managers are struggling with keeping team cohesion and things like that amongst this sort of remote, untethered workforce. And some people are going fully untethered, uh, working, for example, in Bali or other places, doing gig work uh, via their computers and laptops. And uh, an entire infrastructure is cropping up around that. For example, co-living spaces that you can go live for a week in Bali or you can live in Tuscany or Miami or New York. Uh, And you can sort of come and go, bring your backpack or your duffel bag, drop it on the floor and you're moved in. 
So this idea of coming untethered from these traditional relationships and home and hearth and family also have important implications for the workforce because it means that people are more mobile and more willing to go and work uh, outside of the traditional office confines. And so it's really going to pose some interesting challenges uh, for managers and for the workforce in the years to come. Yeah, and it I think that you've really hit on a couple of, of uh, unique dynamics, right? Which is that you're you have people that are designing their their you, I guess you call them like micro lives or micro careers, where uh, there's this uh, you know, the expectation of, of flexibility has changed, but also you know this is this is changing the whole concept of what it means to be in an organization, and uh, this this idea of coming untethered is is really interesting because it you know really go goes back to. Uh, you know, the, the the anchor here, which is that you go back a uh, couple of generations and there were these, a lot of common, uh, you know, common values and common expectations. And you use the term, you know, synchronization uh, and, and a synchronization of time and harmonization of, of values um, around that in, you know, when you, when you were talking about, you know, media and, and, and messaging, could you just talk about what, you know, the implications of, of what that meant in the past and, and, and how that's changed. Yes. Well, we can look at that. Marshall McLuhan does a good job talking about how the media that we grow up in or are immersed in changes us. And, and that's really what I'm talking about in this book regarding coming untethered. And when we look back again at, uh, for example, uh, radio or television, these were sort of tribal in a sense. Uh, early radios and televisions were expensive. Not everybody had one. So the families would gather around uh, to listen to a show or to watch a television show together. Uh, there were the Friday night fights, for example, or the, the news would come on at 5.30 or 6 o'clock and everybody would gather and watch that same show together. And so it synchronized time. So people would come together at a certain time to watch a certain broadcast, and there were only a few channels, right? And these channels were regulated uh, by the FCC, particularly news media, but also entertainment, in terms of what they could show, what they could talk about, because they were considered a commons. And if you look at this idea of the tragedy of the commons, uh, it's this notion that there are certain things that we can use in common, and uh, if somebody's individual interests are allowed to sort of run amok, then that, that ends up in a tragedy for everyone. So the notion is that an unregulated commons leads to tragedy. It's not that there is a commons. So because the media reached out across our country, uh, for example, early television, the FCC saw this as a kind of commons, and particularly news media, so they had regulations in place, for example, the Fairness Doctrine, uh, which said, so let's say you had a political candidate that would come on and you gave them 20 minutes of time. You would have to give 20 minutes of time to the opposition candidate or some issue that was going to be on a ballot, for example, maybe something controversial. You had 10 minutes uh, on one side, you had to have 10 minutes on the other side. So this idea that you wanted an educated population and that they were going to see both sides of the issue. That 
sort of harmonized values in a sense because everybody was seeing the same thing. Everybody was watching the same shows. Everybody saw both sides of the issues. That's how it was. But since the 80s or so, we started to see deregulation in the media. And the outcome of that, I think, was kind of unintended by the folks that deregulated. I think they thought that the market will correct, as, as often people will say. But we ended up in a kind of unintended tragedy of the common situation. What's happened is the news media has become branded. And so people end up in these sort of information silos, only hearing one side of an issue or one candidate. And with the advent of social media, we've also now been able to self-select into these informational tribes that have similar beliefs and similar values to ourselves. It's kind of the old notion of birds of a feather flocking together. And so the same information then is passed around and shared the same news stories in social media. So what that does is it starts to create these larger divisions, particularly between political points of view. And the Pew Internet has done some research on that that showed you know, years ago that, for example, Republicans and Democrats were more closely aligned in their beliefs and values. And now they've moved uh, further apart. And it's easier now to drive wedges in between people because you know, if someone has a different point of view, you can simply unfriend them or block them or not have to have that point of view. In psychology, we call this groupthink. You know, it's the idea that a dissenting voice is kind of silenced or, or not in the conversation. And we know that that leads to very poor decision-making, you know, not having really the full picture. So um, the fact that now we've moved away from that harmonization, in a sense, by hearing the full story in the news it has allowed this sort of splintered off um, opinion or belief groups online that, uh, you know, for example, outside forces have been able to drive wedges in between because we don't have the cohesion we had some years ago. So social media, in effect, I mean, we'd already been seeing... Uh, fragmentation you know from news media being deregulated and then uh, the rise of independent media sources and uh, you know on the internet but 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 you you've also observed that you know social media has 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 amplified these divisions and and really created a lot more uh, i guess you know alienation or or uh, undermine that that you know that that sense of commonality and common purpose is that that's um, that's a that's a point that you uh, that that you highlight quite a bit in your book. Yes, I think that's very important. Um, and the other factor is, and and this goes back to some of my earlier research as well, uh, online with relationships, is that the internet gives you a sense of relative anonymity. You're not standing there face-to-face -face with someone. And this kicks up flame wars. This kicks up, you know, people will say things online to someone that they would never say, for example, if they were just sitting next to them in a bar or something. And that relative anonymity enables these flame wars, enables people to say really ugly things because the perceived consequences are lowered, you see. So 
that's part of what's creating that uh, fragmentation and alienation. So, and, and that's, by the way, another issue that's happening with these untethered workers as well. When people are communicating online, things can flame up very quickly because of the perceived anonymity of communications. Right, you'd lose the context of, of t- even even a phone call. You get a tone of voice and can tell when somebody might be sarcastic or joking or uh, just making an on offhand comment rather than than being hostile. It's uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, so one of the er- the topics that you uh, explore is this concept of emerging values of untethered. Um, of the untethered society, and I'd be interested to uh, to get your thoughts on on a couple of them. Uh, you do talk about this concept of a, media, a mediated world and uh, you know experience versus acquisitions, um, you know transactors versus owners, and there are a few others. Could you could you share a bit of the you know, your insights on on these on these emerging values and and you know, what 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 is really what sticks out as, as really important to, uh, to think about in, in, in your view? Right. Well, these emerging values of the untethered generation are very important because, you know, they really impact everything, particularly, you know, business and commerce. Uh, and it's really a shift around wanting a digital interface and, and wanting to be connected online. And it's really changing everything. So, this desire for a digital interface is one of the emerging values. And we start to think, by the way, that, uh, you know, especially people, I know yourself and I, we use phones, we use social media, we text, uh, but this is generationally uneven. And I think that warrants being noted here that the younger folks that grew up in a world, we call it digital natives, a world where there always was an internet, are more intensely involved in the shifting value set, the shifting behaviors of coming untethered than, let's say, older people in their 70s and above, for example. So this is generationally uneven. Yet, these changing values are affecting uh, or seeping into other generations. So uh, the desire for a digital interface, for example, is one. Um, I talk about in the book where uh, people have seen lines for a kiosk for example, to order in a fast food restaurant while some human being is standing there as a cashier, you know, with no one in line. So that they would rather deal with uh, some kind of a device than a human, for example. Um, And it's also shifting other things. Uh, For example, transactors versus owners is another value shift that I talk about. The idea that you know, there's uh, younger digital natives are less likely, as I mentioned before, to buy a home or to buy a car. Why buy a car when you can Uber or Lyft? More and more, for example, in my classrooms, I'll say, well, you know, how many of you have a car? We have a classroom with about 40, 45 students in it. Two students raise their hand. And more and more people, young kids are a lot less likely to even get a driver's license now compared to, let's say, baby boomers when they were 16, that was a step toward autonomy, getting that learner's permit and then a driver's license. Uh, That was a step from moving away from your parents, becoming an adult, as it were, you know, starting to develop that moving away on your own. But think about it. Now young kids uh, can socialize from their bedroom, and a lot of them are. So this idea that you can transact, so 
you know, you don't have to own a vacation home. You can just go uh, Airbnb, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, more and more things are becoming this transactional uh, thing. Uh, rent the runway. You can rent clothes. You can rent bags, you know. So all the kinds of symbols, for example, of success uh, can be rented now or borrowed as opposed to owned. And that's one of the emerging values that's really key here. I think well, I think one more one, one more that we might want to mention too is this I want it now. I was just talking about that. Digital life spins very fast. And you can push a button and, and get information. You can chat with anybody at any hour of the day. You can order things online on Amazon any hour of the day or night. So this idea of I want it now, or what I call a no latency life, uh, the idea that people expect things so quickly. For example, if a film doesn't download, you've only got a couple of seconds before these kids will move on to the next thing. So the idea that life spins so fast, uh, it's starting to seep into other areas. For example, I'll get an email from a student. If I don't answer that in an hour, they're going to send it two or three more emails. So they expect this instant gratification. I want it now, society. And again, that impacts uh, a lot of different vectors. Well, you brought up a couple of really interesting points that have deeper implications for, uh, you know, for the economy, for, you know, for the, for the market, for investors, for business. I mean, just yeah. the concept yeah. of not getting your driver's license. And we've seen the, the data, you, you cited the data, the, the dropping percentage of 16 and 17-year-olds that, that buy cars. Now, if you extrapolate this going forward and say, well, all right, you start introducing you know, self-driving cars uh, and a, a portion of that, what would have been customers, that future customers for the auto companies goes away, that has big implications for some of these businesses. But I think what's, you know, another area, you, you're highlighting this um, you know, rent the runway and, and other uh We'll we'll call them uh, yeah the these other types of of uh, services where you uh, you know you rent and not own um, that has implications for things like retail and I would love to get your thoughts on exactly. you know what we've been what we've been seeing happening to to retail more broadly and and because this this affects all of us. Right, I, and I've been posting things about the retail apocalypse. And what's happened, and I think that ties into another one of these core sort of changing values. If you think again about, you know, post-World War II and this sort of people were flush with money again and uh, had the GI Bill to buy homes and go to college and things like that, there was this sort of acquisitional value of, of showing off your newfound wealth you know, buy that house in the suburbs or buy that kind of car you had, or maybe you were going to wear some designer uh, thing that had a logo to show your your wealth or, or a Rolex watch or something like that. And those kinds of values are changing a bit amongst younger folks where it's more about sort of attention and likes and and going viral and being an influencer on social media. So it's moved away from this acquisitional uh, world and more towards an attentional economy, if you will. So I think that has huge implications. And 
as you as you mentioned, businesses are struggling with how to uh, sort of reshape themselves to keep up with that. I know, for example, that Cadillac has experimented with doing a kind of subscription borrow type of model with their new car, saying, well, would you like an SUV this week? That's great. Hey, come back and get the convertible next week. Or, you know, maybe you're going to take a trip and you want a sedan the week after that. That's fine. Just bring it in and you can switch anytime. So, you know, this idea of uh, transactors versus owners uh, is going to have some, some really serious implications for retail. And, uh, you know, you've already seen this sort of retail apocalypse happening where malls are closing and stores are closing across the nation. You know, there, there has been some talk that maybe we had overbuilt malls over the years, and that may be true, but there's a, a, a change in behaviors and values underway that is also undermining uh, the retail sector. Yeah, and I think it's interesting when you look at this concept of digital transformation or digitalization where traditional businesses look to transform themselves. I think what you deftly highlight in your work is that there is a there's a social component. It's not just business. It's not just you know supply and demand and economic laws at, at play. But there is also this you know this this underlying tectonic shift that's that's being uh, catalyzed by this combination of of, of technologies of, of compute and, and connectivity as well. Um, you know, I'd be interested to get your sense. I mean, you did mention that there's a there is that, that that's a distinct generational shift, but um, you know, is, is do you think that you know what you're observing this becoming untethered is you know is is it purely a, a matter of the the technology or or is there a is there something else in the zeitgeist that uh, that happens to be affect this cohort or do you see a broader impact of these technologies you know that go beyond you know just the the, the generation where where the behavior changes are most obvious. Right. Well, I think that you have to look at a couple of things. Obviously, there's a backdrop going on. I don't think it's only the technology. In some cases, the technology is driving the behavior. And in some cases, the technology is a response to other factors that are going on in the world. So if you think about millennials, for example, they grew up in an, in a, a, a Scary time, really. If you think about 9-11, if you think about the financial crisis that was going on, the housing crisis, they watched a lot of their parents losing their jobs, losing homes. You know, things that they thought were stable weren't. So it's this kind of a risk society that they grew up in. So you've got this backdrop, in other words, of an economic reality that they came to understand where things that maybe other generations thought were stable they grew up thinking that they weren't as stable. Divorce were high, for example, is uh, another factor. So when the technologies came about, I look at it as like a double helix of DNA, that uh, you've got these two strands. You've got behavior and you've got technology and that they're intertwined and that technology is shaping behavior and behavior is then also shaping technology and how it's used. You know, for example, when the Internet first came out, uh, everybody was saying, first of all, it would be impossible to form a relationship online. 
and they were saying that people were going to use the internet for checking stock prices or information seeking. And what really drove it was the social aspects. And of course, with social media, that's just exploded. So, you know, at the bottom line, we're social creatures, right? We we had to be uh, evolved social creatures or we would have died out as a species, right? So we have this tendency toward wanting to be social, wanting to be together, wanting to see what other people are doing, want to be involved in each other's lives. That's just our nature. And the technology enables that. It enables a view into people's lives uh, that prior uh, would be kind of sight unseen. Uh, You can kind of peek behind the curtain now uh, of people's lives. So in a sense, the technology stepped in when the uncertainty was already afoot for those growing up as digital nomads. And it stepped in and filled a different kind of void. But again, the new behaviors, the new values that we were talking about that are emanating out of this digitally connected world are not, are not solely contained within the millennial generation. They're also starting to impact older generations and, of course, younger who are growing up immersed in a world where not only is there always an Internet, but there always was mobility. So now we have babies growing up with iPads and smartphones and actually acquiring digital skills before they acquire language, which is reshaping and uh, reorienting uh, their, their neural pathways. This is creating a, a whole new brain for these kids, for example. And the outcomes of you know, bringing kids up on digital will still remain to be seen. Well, and this and this really uh, ties into this concept that you uh, that you explore in the book called that that digital technology is recoding our operating system. Could you could you right. expand a bit on that and and share with what what does that mean? What are what are the implications of this? Right. Well. When you, there's an idea that neuropsychologists call uh, uh, neuroplasticity, the idea that the brain is sort of plastic amongst young people, amongst infants and children, or malleable. So the idea that the early experiences that you have reshape who you are. So the idea that we're giving infants now uh, iPads, if you go, for example, on YouTube and look up baby with iPad, you're going to get like tens of thousands of videos of little children that have not acquired language yet that have better digital skills than some of our senior citizens. It'll just blow your mind. But what this is doing is it's changing the pacing of information, uh, the stimulation that they're getting, and uh, it's, it's causing changes in perception. It's causing changes in attention. It's causing changes in in learning. And as we go, we've integrated these devices into our educational process. For example, uh, kids used to learn, uh, you may remember, Ed, learning uh, cursive writing, for example. Uh, And now they're not learning cursive writing. By hand, they're keyboarding instead. And what we're doing here is we're, we're severing the tie between our body and our brain and the environment. And that's something called embodied cognition. It's the idea that 
you know, we kind of think that learning just takes place, quote, in the brain, but it doesn't. It takes place as a system between the brain, the body, and our environment. And so people say, well, we've always had digital transformation. We've always had this. If we go back to the industrial era, you know, but if you take the agrarian folks, the farmers, for example, that then went into the cities and began to work in the factories, the learning process was still analog. You know, if you turn a wheel on, on you know, a water spigot on the farm, for example, it's the same as turning a wheel by hand uh, in, in a factory setting, you see. So the learning feedback mechanisms are the same, mind, body, environment. But now we're severing that tie by digitizing that learning. So kids are growing up in this environment. It's changing how they learn. It's changing how they remember. It's driving things like partial attention or that multitasking. But what we're finding is that when you're not really paying full attention to something, you're not really paying full attention to anything. So this Mm -hmm. idea of sort of multitasking is a bit of a myth. Yeah, so that's it's, kind of where we're at. You know, I, I, I think you'd be really hit on a, a key point. And um, you know, Nick Carr, I believe, had had written the book called The Shallows: What the Internet Is yeah. Doing to Our Brains, where he was talking about how uh, there was a there was a, there was a plane accident that uh, that happened when uh, because pilots have you know, professional pilots are, are have come to rely on the autopilot so so much that they they've lost the the skills to be able to 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 navigate uh on their own when when the, when the systems fail or or navigation you know navigation systems among the Inuit up in uh, in uh you know northern Canada and Alaska they uh uh the the generation that grew up navigating by you know by the stars and and the sun was able to to come back from going out on a, on hunting trips but when you had the younger generation that was relying more on GPS that it really impaired their ability and in life or death situations it, it's it's had a big impact and and I, I I really wonder what you know what what this does mean for uh, you, know, you know for everything right I mean I think you identified this this concept of becoming untethered and um, that you know the the impact of, of becoming untethered from uh, you know, the I guess the you know, physical world is is it, it has is quite consequential for, uh, for you know for learning intention. But you also talk about nature, which I think is uh, is another you know, you know essential part of of living in, in the world. And and uh, it's um, I'd love to get your thoughts a bit on on how important nature is to uh, creativity and art and happiness, but also how the how digital technologies are are changing this relationship. Right. Well, I think that was one of the biggest surprises that I came across. Uh, Obviously, I looked at, you know, how coming untethered impacts our various aspects of life. And one of the findings that about knocked me over was that digital technologies are really helping to drive life indoors now. And, one of the big megatrends that's going on, not only in the United States, but globally, is urbanization. The idea that we're moving from the rural areas towards cities, and this is a trend that's going to intensify around the globe. 
So we've got more people living in cities and more people living indoors. And the stat that just knocked me over was that 93% of adults now spend all their time indoors. 93%. And only 6% of kids are playing outside now. So once again, this is one of the generational changes. Baby boomers would have gone out as kids, looked down the street to see where the bikes were, where all the kids were playing together, playing outside. A lot of kids played outside till the lights came on, and then that was their sign to go home. Parents had no idea where they were. But that also created something that's very important, and that's the idea of resilience. And people have mapped now that kids are wandering uh you know, out into their yard where years back they would have wandered perhaps miles away, perhaps gone to some local pond or lake or, you know, out on their bikes or walking around somewhere out in nature. But kids aren't doing that now. And because we've moved so far away from the farms or from the life in the farms or outdoors in nature, we're starting to see some real deficits going on in terms of people's happiness and physical health, for example. And if you look back uh, at some of the early writers and composers, there's this notion of the pastoral, which I talk about in the book. And the pastoral was a taking leave of the city, you know, going out into the countryside, going for walks, absorbing nature, seeing the birds, the clouds, hearing water, you know, whatever it might be. And that the idea is the pastoral is in three parts. So you take leave of the city, you spend this time out in nature, and then you return uh, back to the city, somehow change. And it's this idea, and now uh, scientific studies are bearing this out, that this experience of what's called the sublime, things that create awe in ourselves, create this sense of wonder that things are bigger than us. For example, looking up into the sky at the firmament of stars and seeing how vast it is really sort of makes you feel small. And it kind of makes your problems feel a lot smaller as well. So the idea of this pastoral, that you're going to take leave of the city and get this creativity, spark these aha moments, also happens because you're reducing focused attention. When we're looking at our devices, when we're reading social media or we're texting, we're focused on something, right? But when you're out in nature, your eyes are wandering. Oh, look at that bird. Oh, see the clouds here. Oh, look at that over there. Your eyes are just wandering around without that focused attention, and that's called diffuse attention. That enables our brains to relax and rest a bit, and that allows us to have these sparks of creativity, these aha moments to go back to the city, you know, with, with new, fresh ideas. So that's something that's missing in a lot of urban dwellers' lives now, where the closest they're coming to nature is what I call fake nature, you know, on the treadmill in the gym where it looks like they're walking through the Grand Canyon, but you're not walking through the Grand Canyon uh, because the embodied sensual experience of that has been stripped away where you're only basically seeing something. You don't have the tactility or the body, uh, you know, the crunch of uh, sticks under your feet or, or dried leaves or the sun on your face or the wind. 
all these embodied, physical, pleasurable experiences are stripped away. Listening to a nature sound tape, for example, to try to help you sleep at night. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of uh, urban dwellers are missing out on, on the relaxation, but also sparking the creativity and new ideas that forays out into the natural environment can bring. Well, it's funny, you also talk about this concept of, of the mediated sublime where digital technologies actually spoil the benefits that people might be experiencing when they go out to uh, go out into nature. That's so true. Yeah. It, it, the, and again, the devices are reshaping our relationship with our surroundings, right? So people are bringing devices with them. And, and that's really a challenge. For example, uh, the national park system, which has been called our, our greatest idea, you know, uh, younger millennials are not going out to the national parks, it turns out, aren't going out to these places. And when they are going out, they're bringing their devices with them. So the national parks, for example, are saying, well, gee, how do we get these young people out here? Do we need to wire the parks so that we have Wi-Fi and charging stations and all that? Or is nature kind of a respite, a place to unplug from all these devices? So you can see it's really some interesting debate. And as people are bringing these devices with them into nature, of course, they're driven by social media. And what's social media driven by? Well, again, likes and getting attention. It's an attention economy. So what gets the most likes is the most unique thing, right? So people are trying to grab birds, like there's examples of people grabbing swans out of a lake to get a selfie with them, or, you know, grabbing peacocks, for example, and then the peacocks die of shock, you know, or there's pictures of people, you know, knocking over boulders or defacing by painting on the national park so they could get a shot for Instagram. So this idea that uh, you're taking your device and sort of destroying nature in order to get that shot for Instagram or for social media, for example, that's going to get more attention is what's happening. And it also does a second thing. It brings in directed attention again, that, that idea that focused attention, getting that shot, getting just the right shot, you're not enjoying the diffuse attention, which is one of the hallmarks of spending time in nature, one of the benefits that it brings you. You've now erased that by having that device there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it really is amazing, too, when you see these uh, these stories about death by selfie. And uh, I mean, clearly, there these are you know these are these are Darren Award candidates, but uh, it, it is <laughs> it, it's quite remarkable how much uh, or you know, how compulsive it's become too. Even even when you go hear uh, a concert, I just recall that. There used to be this ritual where you would go hear musicians, and uh, I guess it doesn't really happen in in all performing arts. But this, I think it was uh, it was about ten years ago when I first went to a concert, and the band comes out on stage, and this is a pretty well known band, and all of, the only thing that you can see is this sea of phones that are taking that phones. are taking pictures, right? And that that was yeah. that did not exist. Well, that's years what's ago. funny. If you look at old music videos, like maybe from the 60s, that's what's most startling is they're looking, they're dancing, they're, you know, together. And now it's you're one step removed from the experience. 
because again, it's that desire for a mediated uh, experience. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing it through the small screen, trying to capture it to elicit FOMO, the fear of missing out or jealousy or envy among your viewers by, oh, I'm at this show. I am have the best seats in the house. And, 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 you know, my students have talked about that. One said he went to a concert and he said, I was so busy trying to get the right shot and the right video that I kind of missed the whole show. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it, it's true. It, it, it's, you can see that it's become compulsive, but of course it, it, it's, yeah. it's also creating the, the learning how to use these technologies effectively is also giving rise to a whole range of, of new types of jobs. And, and as you had alluded to earlier, you know, people are designing different types of lifestyles that are more flexible. Um, I, I don't want to bash on these technologies forever. I, I do think you, you know, what's interesting is the, uh, the opportunities now that these technologies have, have given to people who are creating new types of jobs uh, using these technologies, would love to love to get your thoughts on some of the some of the creative ways that people are carving out you know, new opportunities and designing new careers for themselves. And uh, and then after that, we can talk about the downside. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it certainly creates new opportunities in that you are able to. Well, let's say it this way: one of the assets that people might enjoy is their social network, right? And people have had a network to help them get jobs. For example, here at USC, we call it the Trojan family, you know, and you have that network that can help you get jobs or get opportunities. And what all this connectivity has done is it's expanded people's social network, social graph outside of just this friends and family network of old. And it's vastly increased people's availability to, uh, you know, reach out to new people, to make new connections. For example, they can join a group of interest. I see groups on marketers or, you know, moms or digital nomads, and they help each other. They help each other find gigs. They help each other uh, to create these new opportunities. So that's one thing that this connectivity has done. And it's also enabled people, as I kind of alluded to before, to work untethered from a particular location. So there's entire groups of digital nomads that are working, you know, teaching English over the internet, for example, or doing marketing or social media, um, search engine optimization, for example, uh, as a gig. And so people are doing that from all around the world and, and are able to travel. And it's opened up and created an infrastructure for them to do that. For example, by things like couch surfing. So you can go stay for free in somebody's couch or home, you know, and be part of this community. But also, interestingly, uh, things like HelpX. It's an interesting site where people might have a farm in France or a sheep farm in Philadelphia or something, and they need help. And so they just put an ad up on HelpX or WorkAway is another one. And people can go stay for room and board and learn how to work on a farm or learn how to run an Airbnb. I saw someone who bought a big chateau. They were remodeling for an Airbnb in the Loire Valley of France. And you could go live there and help run it. And it's kind of fun to think about, you know, doing all these little gigs, you know. Uh, I call this kind of a patchwork career. People are patching together all these little gigs uh, to create something. But 
uh, it, it really does uh, enable more flexibility, more experiences, you know, the idea of traveling or doing different things or meeting different people outside of the little box uh, where you were born, for example, or your neighborhood. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, the, listen, the fact that we're having this conversation today is certainly an example of, of people with similar interests that, you know, that can connect and uh, create a whole group of, of you, you have whole groups of, of people that, that have common interests that you, you kind of have uh, virtual clubs that you, you couldn't have before. Um, right. What I'd be interested, though, is to get your your views on the impact of automation on on the economy, and I know you've got uh, you've got pretty strong pretty strong views on this, and love to have you share your insights on because uh, we you know we do see with you know digital transformation and automation it's uh, it's coming here, and AI is accelerating process automation in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. Well, if you think about you know businesses, they want to be more efficient. You know, they obviously want to make money. Yeah. And if you look at things like uh, automation, robotics, and artificial intelligence, you know, there's this idea that eventually and over time that they will exceed human capabilities in terms of knowledge, in terms of speed, uh, in terms of accuracy of work. So, you know, looking at that from a management standpoint or business strategy standpoint, why wouldn't you want to use these tools? to be more efficient or faster or cheaper or better than your competitors, right? From a business standpoint, it makes sense. But when you think about it, I talk about coming untethered from the workforce by choice now. You've got these digital nomads traveling the world and doing these gig economy things from driving for Uber to, um, you know, again, consulting uh, for social media, marketing, or whatever they're doing. So at this point, they're untethering by choice. But over time, as automation and artificial intelligence become more sophisticated and better, uh, workers who are going to be forcibly untethered from the workforce. And uh, this is going to be a problem when you get to a certain scale. you know. And I don't think that we're having uh, enough conversations really about what to do about that. Uh, the idea is that we're going to provide a universal basic income, a UBI, for these people that are displaced by technologies that are forcibly untethered from the workforce. But in my view, that is sort of an instrumental um, solution. For example, uh, well, we're going to take away your paycheck, so we'll give you a paycheck. But think about this. A job or a career is much more than a paycheck, isn't it? Uh, a job is your identity. Oh, he's a dentist, or she's a judge, or uh, this person's a teacher. You know, you talk, well, what do you do? You know, that's often one of the first questions people ask you, right? It situates you in our, in our social world uh, um, in terms of prestige, uh, in terms of social class, uh, and things like that. And it also organizes the time of your day it organizes social interactions. You know, you go to the workplace, it's a social place to be. You work on a team, for example. Uh, so all of these things, the time, the social aspects, the, the sense of meaning and purpose in life, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of identity, the sense of belonging, 
all of these things are, are wiped out when you forcibly untether someone from the workforce. And yet the replacement is income. You see the problem here? And to me, income is the smallest portion, perhaps, uh, of what a job is and what a job means. So I think that as we go, this is going to loom up on our horizon faster than anybody imagined. And I frankly don't think that in terms of the social or psychological implications, we're anywhere close to understanding or really thinking through or having a plan for those that are untethered from the workforce via automation. Yeah, I, I think you make a great point there. And, and that's why the work that you're doing to explore this so that people can understand the dimensions is, is so, so, so important. Now, I, I, now I, I, I don't want to... I don't. I, I don't want to hit uh, you know, the the the, neg- the negatives. I'd, I'd love to ask you, really, what you know, as you look forward. I mean, what from the work that you've done in in the in the long process of you know writing this book and diving into so many aspects of um, you know of, of society and technology and 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 uh, implications. What are you optimistic about? And conversely, what what keeps you up at night? <laughs> right. Well, you know, a lot of things keep me up at night. Uh, you know, mainly I think, uh, you know, we've got this sort of health crisis. We've got this kind of, uh, you know, adrift crisis that's causing a lot of anxieties and things like depression again. And I think that, you know, we've we've come out of the box with technologies like a horse race. The doors flew up and, and boom, we're off and running the excitement of, you know, having like the iPhone, for example, and these internet-connected devices. And I think just now, as we've kind of been in this digital era for a little while now, I think now we're starting to see some of the unexpected that are emerging. So that's really what I'm trying to look at is I'm not an anti-technologist. I am not um, trying to advocate us going back to the day of the horse and buggy. But what I'm saying is that life is about balance, isn't it? You know, moderation. uh, That's what they say, to be healthy. Uh, You know, too much of anything is not necessarily a good thing. And I think that's where we're at now. We've we've got a little too much digital technology in our lives. Um, We've got a global sleep crisis going on, for example. Young people are checking their phones all throughout the night. Well, you know what sleep deprivation does. Try doing that for a while. You know, obviously, you don't deal with emotional things as well. So I think we have to develop a better digital hygiene, if you will, you know, better ways of balancing our digital lives with our analog embodied experiences, hands-on learning, hands-on creating things or being out in nature and all. So somehow we need to, to swing the pendulum back so we create more balance in life. I think that's the main thing. Uh, that we want to think about here. And, you know, of course, there's all kinds of new and exciting things happening. Um, This has created opportunities for citizen journalism or getting messages out that we never would have seen to create social justice. Um, You know, there's all kinds of new business opportunities emerging. Uh, We're just at the beginning of this. And with IoT developing and and this Internet of Things, you know, there's going to be all kinds of things happening. But I think that On the flip side, we still need to consider, particularly 
you know, I think the problem ahead is going to be Anno me. You know, what are we doing when our smart home, for example, is doing everything for us? What's our role? What's our job? We need something to do in life. And uh, so that that idea, idle hands of the devil's workshop, you know, uh, what are we going to do when everything's automated away for us? So we really need to think through these issues. Uh, it's easy to look at the technology and, and get excited, you know, the gee whiz of the, the new shiny, we could call it. But we need to think about some of the social and psychological ramifications for our long-evolved, you know, natural ways of being, you could say, and, and psychological and sociological needs uh, still exist despite the emergence of all these new technologies. Yeah, you make some really great points there in this idea that our, you know, fundamental humanity is 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 driven by, you know, sense of mission and sense of purpose and sense of meaning is just 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 critical to, you know, to happiness and uh you know, a, having a having a civil society and having a, a forward-looking um your sense of hope in in upcoming generations because that's what we that's what we want for our future. So um, it's it's incredibly. <laughs> I know we could we could continue for for hours here, Julie. This is I mean it's it's been uh, it, it's an amazing work left in, to their own devices. I I mean I've just uh, um, I've spent the last week reading it and I'm, I heartily recommend it. Um, but uh, I also want to thank you as well for you know helping us scratch the surface of, of the uh, kind of the rich the rich trove of insights here that, that you've uh, you've been working on and, and sharing with us so thank you thank you so much well hopefully we can start a national conversation about about these things about how to achieve the new balance about how the workforce can step in to maybe restabilize young people and uh, you know, we can start to deal with all these issues that are the unintended consequences of technology and digital transformation. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Julie Albright uh, from University of Southern California has been our guest. Again, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners. Uh, and we thank everyone for listening. As always, if you have any comments or questions, please share them. And uh, the book, Left to Their Own Devices, should be available wherever books are sold. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Ed, for having me. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners with an episode of our Digital Leaders series. Please check our website at momenta.partners for archived versions of prior podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digitization journey. 